You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and SJ Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! man podcast i'm your host doc coil thank you for checking out the show i record this from some hotel in in norfolk 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 virginia and uh bad Wolves just did a few shows just played sonic temple in ohio and did a great festival a radio show in camden new jersey mmr barbecue shout out to M- mmr the radio station those guys were amazing great show and uh, and then we just did a headline show at the at the Norva, and it was badass. So so far things are good. I got another week out on the road here, and our our lone day off. So I was like, you know what? I need to get me a motherfucking episode out. Um, real quick, kind of have a, a a little bit of a serious little monologue. I'm, I'm gonna gonna do here, and uh, and you know, and and some could say divisive. And kind of, I guess, subject matter that I've avoided talking about for obvious reasons. But a f- recently, I had a, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Megan Wright, um, very talented uh, singer-songwriter, and is a, does, doing all kinds of stuff in the business now, uh, working with artists and uh, agencies and promoting shows and doing all kinds of stuff. And she kind of challenged me on, on Twitter recently um, because we have all these uh abortion situations going on in a few different states i think alabama and georgia where you know we have some draconian uh i guess uh rollbacks on some of the laws regarding abortion and and she kind of challenged me you know to use my platform to say something about this and um and it's interesting cuz it, it, it kind of didn't occur to me because I've in many ways stopped having or putting myself out there in that, in that regard because I think uh, with politics, the current tenor of politics right now is formatted in, in, in a way uh, where the toxicity and the partisanship is so, so, so just destructive that I almost didn't think it would matter. You know, and when you take something especially like abortion, which I would put in probably like the top 
three or four uh, more fraught issues that the, the, the emotions are so high that it's it's almost, you know, if you make even a compelling argument, it's actually very difficult to convince anyone. And so I think there's almost like a futility in being some 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 great kind of voice. All right, I'm going to go out here and essentially tell people who agree with me what they already think, and then I'm going to kind of ostracize people who, who disagree with me. Um, you know, but I guess with that, I, I kind of, so I, I kind of felt that when I was, when I was challenged, but at the same time, I was like, you know what, maybe this is, this is, this is one issue. I'll, I'll at least explain how I feel. Um, and this is always a little, this, this is always a little, a little dangerous, but, but hopefully, you know, uh, people will kind of see where I'm, see where I'm coming from. And even if they disagree with me, at least, you know, hopefully I can, I can explain the way that's respectful. So the, the first things first, I want to talk about the idea of, you know, that I consider myself a centrist. And, and by that, being a centrist does not mean you just see every issue 50-50 or you're wishy-washy or you're this on this, you know, that's not what it means. It means essentially that I can see both sides of, of an issue directly and still come out on one end. So I tend to lean left on most things, but it doesn't mean I can't see the other side of the argument, but it just might be 60-40, right? Um, and I think abortion is one of those things is that, you know, even the even the 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 sides people take is mark is a form of marketing, right? So saying I'm pro-choice, right? Well, everyone loves choice. How could you be against choice? Pro-life, everyone loves life. You like being alive, you're alive. That's great, right? How could you be anti-life, right? So even the names of, of the different sides are propaganda to a, to a certain degree. And the way you become a partisan on, is on, on something is to believe 100% that you are the one fighting for good and the people who are against you are evil. And whether it's guns, they, they know it's the same thing. They, you know, people believe the pro, oh, we're, you're a gun nut. You just want to kill people. I'm the good guy. I want to keep people safe. The people who who love who love guns think the anti-gun people hate freedom, and that people are gonna shoot up the schools. And you're just gonna let them because you don't have guns, right? So everyone thinks that they're on the right side of history. Everyone thinks that they're the good guy. Um, but I think in this particular situation, I think it's just that one. So the, the, the you know you, you have a situation where no one likes abortion. Right, people getting abortions are not sight. <laughs> you know, I think that that it's a sad day for everyone involved, but it's a sad day in which the people that get an abortion are happy that the the option is there. You know, and I think um, unfortunately, the the opposition to that is mostly around. It seems to be. I don't, I don't want to, you know, kind of lump everyone in, but a lot of the time it's around religion. And unfortunately, if, if you got to a place politically based solely on religion, there's nothing here I'm going to say or almost anyone is going to say to convince you otherwise. You know, because, you you know, you're... And the thing is, I don't even know if that is um, covered and... Bible, whatever they probably, probably didn't even have abortion. I don't even know. I, I don't know, and I'm not gonna, you know. So I, I can't. I think 
So, so from there, I cannot really identify with that. I'm not a religious person, so I'm not going to look at it from that uh, perspective. You know, but the people who are pro-life, you know, they think they're defending, they're stopping babies from being killed. And what can be more just than that, right? I am saving babies. I am saving lives. Um, but I think that that perspective only really makes sense if you just if you just look at it like that and then you kind of put blinders on. You don't take anything else in the in the context. And the truth is, you have to weigh things against other other things. You know, the truth is, women who might want to have abortions, they're here. They have a voice. They're already out in the world. They're doing things. And I think that that life outweighs the other life. That's just what I think. And I think it's a trade-off. And, and I think for the, for the other side of, of the argument, it's really a situation that's almost very libertarian in that it really, if you don't focus on it or you don't think about it or if you don't invest yourself into it, it literally doesn't affect you. Right. So some woman across the country has an abortion. Right. And you're some 50 year old dude works somewhere in Ohio. You're pro-choice. If that baby doesn't come into existence and grow up and do things, it doesn't. The absence of that does not affect your life at all. It doesn't. And so it's this idea that you can advocate for the voiceless. And. In a way, you get to that particular advocacy group. They never get to weigh in, right? Like they, and you know, they never get to actually, you know, you you never. So you get to uh, claim their entire kind of sense of of being in existence. And I think there's something a little un, unfair about that. Um, so to me, you know, and the, and the truth is, it's like the gun thing, right? Then this is where they're similar. Is that Oh, if we legalize guns, then people are still going to get guns. If we legalize drugs, people are still going to get drugs. And abortions are the same way. Uh, we legalize it, and people still do it. Women get hurt. Um, and there's the idea that, you know, there's a theory that came from, uh, I read a book, uh, Freakonomics, where one of the theories that why crime started going down in the 90s is because it was 18 years after Roe v. Wade that essentially potential criminals didn't come into existence because you didn't have uh, mothers coming from less fortunate circumstances who didn't have the ability, and unfortunately that would filter down to their to their children who you know didn't have the lives and the upbringing. And unfortunately, looking at things just from the perspective of abortion, we don't look at the totality of how we raise young people and you know having people in a position where they can have you know, do a good job as, as, as parents, you know? So, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways to look at this and I am pro-choice, but I don't, not because I think people who are pro, pro-life are evil or they're terrible people. I just think it's a little, it's just, what do you weigh? And there's probably nothing I can tell you that unborn babies, you know, they're, that's the, the thing obviously you want to protect. Um, but I do think there are, there are unseen consequences that make me want to say, those women who are here, and this literally doesn't affect you. It doesn't, you know? And that's where you kind of have, and I'm, you know, and this is the other thing that probably might make, make, make me, you know, some people might not like me, is to say that, you know, 
we're all going to die. Everyone's going to die. Right? Uh, so we can't stop death. Right? But what we should try and do while people are alive is, is mitigate suffering. Right? That's what we should, you know. And prima, you know, people dying before, before their time. I guess you could say if you're pro, like, hey, well, you aborted a baby. That's way before their time. And I totally get that. Um, but I think we want to stop suffering. And I think that outweighs, outweighs the, the other thing. And hopefully we can get to a point. I think the, the best case scenario is abortions there if you want it, but we should do everything in our power to make sure there's as few abortions as possible, you know, and make adoptions uh, possible or, um, contraception and anything people can do to be able to plan those things in their life because it's so it's so important you know and i think too from the religious side of it so much of that is pro-family that's what they're all about family 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 and all their their edicts are all about having big families and not using contraception and that's that's their thing that's fine but truth we got plenty of people we're fine it's not we're running out of people you know it's not cho- children of men um you know and then when we run into that problem then maybe you know because everyone's worried hey people are coming here why do you want more people in you know, and that sounds kind of dickish, but in a, in a kind of weird way, people are so worried about overpopulation. It's kind of odd that it's this idea that we just, you know, I, I think in, in many ways, children is not an infinite resource, but it's an it's a fairly abundant resource. Um, not for everybody. Obviously, some people have uh, can't have children and stuff, and that's terrible. But, um, you know, it's something that I'm not focused on philosophically as the main thing we should have as a society is making sure there's as many people as, as possible and there should never be any situation with that, you know? So I don't know. I think that last part probably, <laughs> probably might rub, rub some people the, long, the, the, the wrong way. And I, hopefully, I, I don't think I said it as eloquently as I would, I would like to, but I think there's a lot of com- complexities to it. So I guess this is me for my friend Megan uh, saying my piece a little bit, and I don't know if that really swayed anyone and it was kind of long and and for that i apologize you know this show is mainly supposed to be fun but sometimes you got to talk about something that's happening out there so if you're anyone in uh in those states where they're going through some of this uh this legislation you know do what you can i don't even know if there's anything i can do i don't live in these places but if you can you know do what you can get involved i'm not really an activist i kind of just say a bunch of stuff and hopefully uh try not to offend too many people or I could offend people and become like a shock jock, you know, and just be like, you know, just start shitting on people. That's how you get ratings, man. Maybe my, maybe my ratings would go up if I start shitting on somebody. Anyway, actually, right now I'm not going to shit on anybody. I'm going to talk about this week's show sponsor. I'm very excited. And the band is called Alex. And I'm going to play a track entitled This War. Check it out.
So that was This War by the band Alex. And just to let you know that it's spelled A-L-Y-X-X. And it is led by singer, songwriter, musician Alex Wyshar. They are based out of Rockland County, New York. And it also includes Frank Bohr on guitar, Dean on bass, and Zachy Ali, Ali on drums. And they, that single is actually part of an EP, self-titled EP, which is available on all major streaming platforms. And you can check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Official Alex, and check out their website, officialalex.com. I thought that was really cool. I, you know, glad to get some more female artists on the show, and you know, that definitely is very important. We gotta, we gotta, gotta spread the love, and I appreciate them so much. Uh, for supporting the show, and I, and I hope you guys enjoyed that. And please check them out, support them, buy their stuff, stream their tracks, hook this shit up. Thank you guys so much. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer, WMMS, Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. And with the business out of the way, I would like to introduce our guest this week, Mr. Scott Ian Lewis of the band Carnifex. And I wanted to have him on the show to talk about the film Lords of Chaos, considering Scott's, you know, band Carnifex having, you know, some black metal influence and very evil and using a lot of that imagery and also his background uh, as someone who is very interested in film and does screenwriting. I thought it'd be cool because I saw the film and it, you know, it. I just had so many thoughts and emotions, and I think it pertains to our our culture. You know, I'm, I I really care about the culture of heavy heavy metal and heavy music and hardcore and all that stuff. And it, and it felt, as far as like a real film, the thing closest probably to uh, our world. And I and I think that that merited having a, a discussion about. We talk about a little other things in in the end about his graphic novel and all that stuff. But um, I just wanted to give, give you that thing. This is not just talking about the history of Carnifex or anything. If you were if you were looking <laughs> looking looking for that, but um, also just a little note about this uh, episode. It was a Skype conversation, and there are some little digital kind of blurrings of a couple words you kind of drawn out and for that I apologize and hopefully it doesn't uh disrupt how you guys hear the conversation so anyway with all that out of the way 
Enjoy my conversation with Mr. Scott Ian Lewis. Anyway, uh, Scott Ian Lewis, welcome to the X-Man podcast. Thank you for having me, Doc. Appreciate it. Yes, but we but we are here not to not to discuss any X Men business. We're 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 here to to discuss a film, uh, Lords of Chaos, directed by uh, Jonas Ackerland. Yeah, and it's yep. a film about the black metal band Mayhem, based right. based on a, on a book of, of 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 the same name. And I wanted to have you on uh, because I know you're. You know, involved in screenwriting, and you're someone who really cares about film. But you're yep. also in a band that you know has a lot of black metal influence and kind of evil imagery and <laughs> lyrical content. So I figured you'd you'd have some connection uh, to kind of the the vibe that that this this film was 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 putting out, and I wanted to kind of talk to someone who had a. A, a good breadth of of the different well, themes going on here. Yeah, and you know, I actually have a relationship with the book prior to the movie because I read it when I was thirteen or fourteen. You know, I think I read the book for the first time. It's probably nineteen ninety eight or nineteen ninety nine. Wow did that um, did that have an impact on you? Yeah, you know, because of course, you know, this is all pre internet. Of course, uh, um, you know, I'm 34, so to kind of give you my age, I was you know 13 years old, roughly in '98, 14, and '99, or you know, 14, 15, and uh, so I got that book about the same time I got like the Anarchist Cookbook and kind of just like all those books that you could get at like head shops. Maybe that's where mm-hmm. I bought it at. There was this head shop in Oceanside, um, just north of San Diego, California. They had, you know, they have all the pot stuff and then they had the sex shop in the back, but they had this like death metal, black metal section also. And it was kind of the only place where you could get the mail order European stuff. Um, And they had a little bookstore too. And they had like metal books. I think they also had that, that death, um, they had like an old death book about the band death. I can't remember the name of it now, but and they had Lords of Chaos there, and I bought it and read it, and you know it all seemed real crazy and extreme. And I kind of, you know, you kind of remember the story and then just go on with your life. And then watching the film, I don't know, I had such a, it had such a different impact on me than when I read the book, you know, eighteen years ago or whatever it was. Yeah, I mean, I you know, as soon as I saw the film, I kind of went on like a YouTube hole. And kind of just to get some other opinions of what people thought about the book, because, you know, one thing I should say definitively is I haven't read the book and I'm not one. I don't want to claim to be some some expert. And I think some of the peripheral criticisms I've heard is basically about accuracy. And yeah, and I think and I think you know, just something to kind of put out there is, is even the film itself says at the right at the beginning that, you know, it's kind of somewhere between what happened, the truth, things people have told. And, and a big theme through this film is about the idea of creating le- mythology and let enhancing your own legend by embellishing things, mm, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I think that's at the heart of it is, is the book from what I've heard is actually multiple people's accounts. And some of those uh, contradict each other. Yeah, I guess... Yeah, and I think, you know, even if without the disclaimer, you can pretty much assume that there's 
probably no real way to know what actually happened. And, you know, honestly, in watching the film, I, you know, I kind of had a hard time trying to understand what the filmmaker was trying to say. I didn't really understand his intention with the film. So actually, so let's even start there. So, so did you not like the film? Did you like the film? What, what are your What are your general thoughts about it? I didn't care for it, um, and I guess there's two. There's kind of two ways to look at it. I think you can look at the you can look at the film just sort of from a filmmaking perspective, subject matter aside, and then I think you can look at the context. Look at it within the context of sub subject matter. I think without the subject matter, I think it was just a poorly made film. It didn't look great. Um, I, Sigaross scored it. I didn't even hear any music. I don't even remember any good score on the music. So I thought that was odd. Um, the tone was so inconsistent. You know, it, I thought the characters, I thought the performances were okay, but honestly, I, I placed it on the director. I don't think the director really gave any of those characters an arc. Uh, so I thought from a filmmaking perspective, it was pretty poor. Um, and then I think as far as the subject matter, I don't know. It just, I had a hard time seeing why they even bothered making it, frankly, because it just made the whole thing looks, made the whole start of black metal just like look so dumb and pointless. You know, it, I don't know. It, it just wasn't a good movie for me. <laughs> That's interesting because I'm, I'm on the other end. I actually, I actually really did like it. And did I, you really? Yes. Yes, I did. And I think, oh, wow. Okay. And I think you actually answered your own question. Maybe I did. Um, you know, I think it's really important to note that. Uh, Jonas Ackerland uh, is from Sweden. He was in Bathory, so he's yep. he's connected uh, to this scene. So it's not like some random outsider is making it. And he's also uh, someone with an actual real film background. He made Spun, which is a fucking awesome movie, um, right? And visually, very very uh, kind of groundbreaking for when it when it when it came out. And was also a prominent film um, uh, and the, music video director. The new Netflix. Uh movie polar yeah he did that mm -hmm. well i have to i have to check it out um yeah so it's interesting you say that because i i, I was looking him up and i'm kind of i was sort of wondering the same thing i'm like okay the guy's got chops but like why did this movie not land um and then i was looking around for the budget i couldn't see what the budget was so i think it was done sure, for a you few, know it was done for a few million dollars that's kind of what i figured probably was like two and a half or somewhere in there you know um well so I think you answered your own question. Uh, you said the film, I don't know the purpose of what the film was. And then you said it really made these guys look like the beginnings of black metal was really dumb. And I think yeah. the actual goal of the, well, what they were trying to do is tell a pretty har harrowing and horrific story. And, and this is kind of pointed by, you know, one thing I noticed about the film is not only the violence that took place, but how the violence was portrayed. It was not, you know, the thing is, it's, it's there's all these kind of, um, there's a duality, right? So you have the characters in the film watching really violent horror films, like really right. bloody, gory, and they're really kind of turned on by it, or they're numb to it, or it's just, it's just this kind of really over the top, fun horror movie violence. And the violence yeah, in the this movie stuff, yeah. is not fun. It is no, really, gnarly. it is every time it's a lot of my, you know, my instinct was to turn away or yeah. And <laughs> you know, there, there are scenes, there are scenes of murder and it's, 
anti-cinematic, right? So in, in a normal movie, you know, a killer will stab someone once and they're, you know, blood will shoot and they'll die. But in this right. movie, they show that, no, like, people don't die that easy and they're they're suffering and it's it's really it's really raw and uh and unglamorizes these acts and you know and and that's i totally agree with that i thought that the scene where dead uh kills himself was actually the best scene in the film um not that it was enjoyable but it was the best shot i thought it was the most cinematic although it was extremely dark and obscene it was very gripping and um it created a certain emotion for sure but then uh, you know like a scene later it feels like i was watching the motley crew movie you know and i i just that to me that was one thing i was really kind of confused by like the inconsistency in tone and then just trying to understand the intention couldn't wrap my head around it um you know, so I thought that as grisly as that scene was, as much as I don't ever want to rewatch it because it really was quite sad, um, it was probably one of the best scenes in the movie. And then some of the other parts are just so different. It didn't make sense to me. You know? Well, I like like I said, I think those what you're what you're talking about is actually the internal hypocrisy of young people who were really they were. They didn't know anything and they were idiots. So yeah. there's a scene, there's a scene where they're in a bar and they're complaining about death metal, right? Saying that right. all they they like all they want to do is write about partying and drinking beer and how much bullshit that is while they're in a bar drinking beer. Right. Is yeah. that is that there is this um and I and this is kind of one of you know, kind of about the because I think we, we have a couple things overlapping. Um one is is very particular to the culture of Norway and Scandinavia, right? And like I said, this internal hypocrisy of these group of young people, and, you know, whether they're anarchists or I don't, I don't know exactly what you want to pinpoint nihilist. the actual the nihilists, uh, pinpoint the ideology. But the the main truth is they were coming from a point of privilege, right? They go to show you very early on how they come from these really squeaky clean suburban yep yeah, very especially and even within that norway is if not the the most uh wealthy nation in the world one of the most wealthy nations yeah, yeah. in the world and they show you how oh i'm gonna borrow my dad's volvo and <laughs> they have a farmhouse and they don't talk about who paid for it they just know that they you know right. what i'm saying and they show their first time they're ever jamming and like i said they, they started this uh, in 84 and he or 86 and he 84 he was 16 and he had a brand new marshall a brand new Le, like les paul like I right mean, very very top end high end gear and it's showing that they're uh this i don't know at least at least for me it's that when you have almost when you have everything and things are really good that you need something it's like rebel without a cause like you need something to rebel against you need some kind of there's like almost when things are just okay there and there's no definitive enemy young people are going to find something to rally against they're going to find something to right. be angry against but within that they still benefit from all right. the aspects of society and they're so and they're so they don't it's so invisible they don't even realize same thing with the record store he's like oh yeah my dad just gave me money for a record store 
Right. Which actually, the... I don't remember that being in the book. I don't know if I forgot it or what, but I don't remember that aspect being touched on it before. So it was interesting to to be reminded of that. So, so I, I think a lot of these inconsistencies in tone are also inconsistencies that you have these guys who are all about we want to be evil and we want to be we want people to kill ourselves when they listen to this, but then. It's like they're showing them. It's like, why didn't you kill yourself? Or why are you? It's like, so there's little things. Like I noticed there's, they'll always show them with like a Coke cup. Right. Right. Yeah, something that really just takes you out of the evil. <laughs> well, no, but that you're, you're supposedly so against the system, but you're actually part of the system. Part of and it. you yeah. benefit and enjoy all these things. You like beer too. You like girls. You like Coca-Cola. You, you know what I'm saying? But you're. You, you want to tear all this stuff down, but you don't even know what you really mean by that. And that is even further enhanced in actually my favorite scene of the, of the film is when Varg is being interviewed by the journalist. And the oh, journal, right. And the journalist is like, wait a second. He's like, so you're, you're pagan, you're Satanist, but then you're also a Nazi. He's like, you do understand these are conflicting <laughs> ideologies and he has no idea. You know? Right. So that what I'm saying is that by the conflicting tone in the film, it's mirroring the actual conflicting what's going on with these these young people who don't, I think, have a sense of, of themselves or the world, which is OK because they're like 16, 17, 18 years old. Just what they did isn't OK. But right. I don't yeah, know. I think. No, I think that's a, I think that's a really deft perspective. And I do see that. I kind of wonder if that was in the intention, though. Um, just, I don't know, because it was other things, too, uh, about it that I thought was real odd um, th- beyond that. But I think that's a great point to show that they really didn't have an absolute, you know, even though they tried to present themselves as this, you know, very strict and very, um, I guess, kind of this pure, you know, true Norwegian, right? That was the whole point. They were trying to just get uh, evil in its purest form. Uh, then you realize that, you know, like you're saying, the Coke can sitting right there, or it was done in this big giant studio. At least in the film, they showed a real nice studio. Yeah. Uh, and then all the gear you talked about. So it's like, yeah, I wonder if that was in his intention. If it was, then hey, pat on the back. But to speak to to the story and less to the adaptation of the film. But yeah, I wonder. I don't know, man. I think to me, it was sort of. I don't know. It kind of was like demystifying the origin. And I think when you demystify anything, it becomes a lot less enticing. I I think there's, I think that's exactly the point. And there's one of the, I saw this really good review to someone. They made a great point about the scene where they show them doing the show. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a, there's a dichotomy between the filmmaker, Jonas Ackland actually making the movie and showing the way the band looks. And then there's a guy who's filming on a VHS camcorder and the way it looks through the camcorder, right? So it's it's this idea that that's a dichotomy where on the camcorder, that footage is what made it to the world, right? So when you take something and then you copy it 50 times and it's grainy and it looks crazy, you're like, oh man, this is the sickest thing. But when you actually show it for what it is... It is demystified. That's the whole point. Because I think when you make a film like this and you show people burning churches, killing people, murder, there's a really great responsibility to not glamorize this shit. Because how many kids heard about this stuff through however they, you know, through the legends and people talking about it and wanted to emulate that? I mean, this is, you know, as far as metal is concerned, 
black metal is a big pillar of that. And there's obviously in the more commercialized form of that, but it's a pretty dominant subculture or sub subgenre, you know? Yeah, it is. Which I think that's, you know, I think too, <laughs> in the demystifying of it kind of was embarrassing in a way, you know, uh, it's like kind of embarrassing to, you know, myself, I'm like this huge fan of black metal. And honestly, black metal had a bigger impact on me than, than death metal did early on. Uh, and then you kind of, yeah, the film really highlights all the hypocrisy and the silliness and kind of just, it's in it, to me, it's a complete opposite of what the genre wants to paint itself as. And, yeah. And that's, yeah. What, but that's what it's all <laughs> it's about. It's a facepalm moment, you know? So I think another, really great uh comparison is if you look at um straight out of compton right and which was fantastic yeah and that's and i think that's a different level of filmmaking I th and i think if you if you kind of look at that and even so within about the course of a year we had this film Queen, yeah. we had this we had um uh the dirt bohemians rhapsody and mm -hmm. a star is born right so which you, is also fantastic well i think i think by far star is born is the best film so good. Out, so of, good. Out, out of all those and there's a different level um and then probably Bohemian's Rhapsody underneath that but just in terms yeah. of the actual quality but to me this film ultimately probably as a film will probably stick with me more than Bohemian Rhapsody because I, I think the themes yeah. in it are much more subversive and interesting to me whereas Bohemian Rhapsody is pretty much hits the beats as any pretty much uh Hollywood biopic, whether it's Ray or Walk the Line or any 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 of these films, it's pretty much in that that kind of that style of filmmaking. And it's obviously you have great actors and it's shot well and it's like that that last scene, the uh live aid scene is is probably you know one of the Fantastic, best yeah. one of the best concert footage ever. Um, it was and, really good, yeah. And then the dirt to me is kind of like I'd probably put it right, right under, but only not because I think it's done poorly. I think it's exactly what we would want out of that film um yeah I, I i enjoyed the dirt more than than this i thought it was well it's more enjoyable <laughs> this more enjoyable yeah I yeah i don't it's I don't better think... made too it's better made i i think man i think at the end of the day it was i don't know i i just was really disappointed with the quality of the film you know and comparing it to straight out of compton comparing it to a star is born I thought those were fantastic. I love those movies, especially Star is Born. And then I'm right there with you. Uh, the Queen movie was right under that, and then Crew was under that. I don't know. I guess I just expected a higher level of filmmaking. You know? Well, uh, actually, so here was the point I was making about the dichotomy is that so sometimes it's like the idea life imitates art, art imitates mm -hmm. life, right? So yeah. We, we look at some of the guys who were in NWA, and was it, you know, Ice Cube was from this. A more wealthy, you know, a, a more middle class background. He wasn't in the hood like some of the, some of the other guys. And then you had Dr. Right. Dre, and some of the other guys were in like an R and B group with you know glitter Doing in their the hair and VFWs basically. Yeah, and but you know, and you had one real gangster in the band who was the worst rapper. <laughs> you know, that's easy, right? Yeah, and he was only there because he was the the ba the bankroll. <laughs> and they kind of used his actual real world experience and then other people in the band who were more talented as songwriters took that and ran with it and it amplified it but it wasn't necessarily reality right yeah. it was or it wasn't their 
day-to-day reality. But then what that inspires is people to actually do the shit in the songs and then it becomes more of a reality than it was. And I think that's a very similar thing with, with this, where you had these roots of people doing, you know, even within the same band, right? So you had Euronymous talking all this shit, but not doing anything, right? Mm-hmm. But the real dudes, right? You have Dead, who was just a sick human being. Like he was, a, he was, he had clinical depression. Um, yeah, just and, broken. Yeah, he was a he was a, he was a broken human. And what I think what we we tend to do as people who consume art is look at tortured artists and kind of put them on a pedestal and say, "Wow, that guy was really real." When it was just we're just he seeing suffered for his art. Yeah, I'm no, or he just suffered and he made art, right? And then we look at that and then we kind of idolize that, even though you would never really want to be that person, you know. No, but that but that person's fascinating, especially if you're someone who's fascinated by personalities and and, and point of views. And I I think, yeah, the, the characters were fascinating. That that's the thing. I think you know. I think in the, the modern context of where politics kind of are and where the, the the national conversation is, I think the subject matter is probably really tone deaf. So I think that is something to contend with, but also. I don't know. It's like this weird thing where it, it just kind of highlighted the pointlessness of uh, why dead killed himself and why they burned the churches because they didn't really have an absolute, you know? And I think to me, the jumping off point of the genre almost was like after that, or at least I like, I want to, I want to believe that it's after that, you know, I want to believe it was with bands like immortal or bands like dissection where they, that's the part of black metal that I really embraced was like the storytelling and, and the kind of uh, like the Lord of the Rings esque type stuff. Well, um, well I think it, listen, you talk to or hang around like the guys in behemoth or Watain or like Gaul from Gorgoroth. Like there, there is a um, mindset and a level of kind of seriousness to, you know, what they think is kind of, true and real about about the origins of what they're kind of trying to do that i think is genuine i don't Mm -hmm. know if that necessarily means they're gonna go commit some heinous crime but i do think there is you know i kind of it started to make me think about the cross-section between music politics and activism right it's sticky right now well no no but just but just the idea that so you have certain bands where like think about like earth crisis right Mm -hmm. You could make an argument that their politics and activism was more important for them than the music, per se, in terms of yeah. priority, right? I mean, they brought, they put veganism on the map, you know, in the scene, for as far as I was aware. Right, but that, but I think so, and then when you look at a band like like Mayhem and this this scene, to me it has a lot, almost more more parallels with punk music where you there was this primitive uh mastery of the instruments but there was an ideology that seemed to outweigh the actual sound of the music right like that was like even this this thing that I, I, that kind of fascinated me is this, this idea of doing gigs or touring was selling out yeah i thought that was pretty funny but i mean i you know they had different i think that highlighted the different points of views within 
kind of the the dark circle, so to speak, you know, and I don't know. I mean, maybe that was kind of highlighting some foreshadowing on just how fractured the genre and how fractured black and death metal fans are or what was to come, you know, because even with even with just three people basically doing black metal, uh, you know, dead, Euronymous and Varg, uh, they still couldn't really agree on anything about what was actually true and what wasn't. So I think if you look at the origin of just also seeing like this inability to identify what is a true origin, I, I think I think if you're if you're looking for a parallels kind of between origin and then where the genre is at now, I think we see a lot of that now. Still people trying to identify what is true, what isn't, what can be considered a part of black metal or death metal and what can't be. Um I don't know. I thought that was interesting to see that among those characters and, and still be playing out now across all sorts of genres. Yeah, but I, I think, uh, you know, so the one girl references, references Venom, which obviously inspired uh, a lot of the early early black yeah. metal, basically saying, yeah, it was all, it's all an act. It's all, it's all bullshit. Um, and I think there is a fine line between that. Like I said, going back to this cycle of someone portrays this idea of something being true or real or authentic, but then with, and to say, well, we don't care about selling out. We don't care, care about this. But by the end of it, Uranus was all about, Hey, this is great marketing. Hey, this is mm-hmm. great. This will, you know, and so they were, like I said, the, the, there were contradictions at every turn, right? To yeah. say, we don't care about this, but, they were all enamored with the fame that Bard got from the church burnings and all and all and and, and all that stuff. So I think there all these things were are kind of built in. Or, or hey, you know, it was just I, I just say a bunch of shit, but it's not really real. And if you look at it, Euronymous really didn't outside of taking the pictures. Yeah, um, he, you know, he didn't really much. do anything until other people did it first. You know. Yeah. And he wasn't yeah, really involved point. in it. So he was, in a way, almost like this guy that put crazy shit in the air and then other people did it. And then he became part of it later. You know what I'm saying? So it's yeah, so, yeah. so I, I don't think it, it is definitive between something being authentic and not. I think it's like this thing of you bullshit, then someone actually does it, so then they're authentic, and then it kind of... It, it, <laughs> it almost wills the shit into reality, but... You know, you know the 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 acts themselves are are legendary, and then all of a sudden it, it's this idea of you know that's that's the real shit. You know, and, and there's always going to be something very appealing about that. Same thing if you're a gangster rapper, there's always going to be something going to be very appealing about. Yeah, I was a drug dealer. Yeah, I had to, I shot people. I did this, and that's real. And yeah. people, people want that in in the art because you want authenticity and i think kind of going back to the why do we like tortured artists i think that when you know if you know black metal wouldn't have worked if everybody knew varg came from a rich family you know what i mean and it just like nwa wouldn't have worked if everybody had walked out of calabasas you know i think that when you see somebody living a great life you know how could they how could someone living a great life have anything to tell you how could they be interesting right they got everything easy but if you you know looking at what the black metal kids wanted to present per, uh, present themselves as and then looking at how nwa was marketed and using um easy ease cred 
uh, the, you know, that's what draws people in is that interesting character that has that background that seems so unique and, um, and trying to think of the, the way to illustrate, like, you know, like, you know, they've gone through, um, like a, a real kind of shedding of the everyday to get down to the core of emotion. You know, like when you go through, th- through something traumatic, you really get changed in a lot of ways. And I think that you can recognize that that happens in other people. I think that's why it's, you know, it's always interesting to, to interview. You probably have a lot of fun interviewing people that have done something, you know, really out of the ordinary. And I think so when you see a story about someone like that, it instantly draws you in um, much more than it would if somebody was just coming off of, you know, stepping out of a nice life. Yeah, no doubt. And I, and I think that is a, a theme throughout the film is this idea of posers, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're a poser. You're a poser. But it, a lot of it made me think a lot of, a lot of that was just insecurity, right? Yeah. So that you, it, it's almost like imposter syndrome. You feel yeah. like you're a poser. You're not really real. So you have to weed out the other posers or, or this, yeah. you know, but, but, I, <laughs> but I think a big theme in the, in the film is that idea of what is real what is genuine, what is just talk, what is bullshit, what is mythology, you know, but ultimately, you know, the actual things that happened were real, you know, people got fucking killed right, um, in really brutal ways, and it, and it, and it kind of, you know, I guess the, the thing, you know, I, you know, I kind of talked a little bit about this before, but this idea of where does this come from, this, the, that, that anger, that rage, that, that, wanting to kind of tear everything down and I, I just wonder if that's this is kind of a thing where i think we'll never actually have a utopia because i think it's no matter how good things are for most of the people there's always going to be one subset that's gonna be like fuck this shit they just want to they just want to tear it down just just because just because they can you know yeah almost like a, like a like a antibodies fighting a virus or something you know um if that makes sense it does. I, I, I know what you mean. And, you know, what you're, what you're talking about, I think, has been philosophized about quite a bit. And it reminds me of a scene in Mad Men. I'm not sure how big of a Mad Men fan you are. Oh, yeah. Huge, um, huge Mad Men fan. Okay, so then you may be familiar with the scene where um, Don is having dinner with Rachel Mankin. And they talk about utopia. And she says, uh, Rachel Mankin says, you know, the origin for the word utopia is utopus. And what the actual literal translation is in Greek is the land they cannot be. And I think that really kind of says it all. It's like, I think the idea of utopia is, is exactly that. It's a land that cannot be. I don't think it exists. And if this film's intention was to highlight that, then they definitely did that. <laughs> because you're right, even for all the privilege that they had and all the social safety nets that Sweden provides. Um, Norway. People still got killed in this. Yeah, Norway. Or, I'm sorry, Norway, my bad. Yeah. Um, Even though Sweden's got a nice uh, safety net, too. So. Yeah, <laughs> they do, yes. Sorry, Norway. Um, you know, they. I think, yeah, it's just even though you can basically get everything you could want, this still happened. I, so that's an interesting point to ponder. I, I'm not sure... If I can come to like a thesis on what it means, but it definitely opens up so many doors to try to understand the human condition and understand people's response to environment. You know, it's like we see 
with PTSD, you, re, you see the response to a horrible environment. Is this movie highlighting the response to a, a almost perfect environment? I don't know. Well, well, I think I think perfect is is not the maybe the best way to put it, but I noticed a theme in films in the '80s, like late '80s. We kind of got films like Pump Up the Volume, Heather's. Uh, even a lot of stuff in the in the horror genre about suburban boredom and mm-hmm. opulence. How that and and one of the main themes in Heather's and Pump of the Volume is is suicide, right? right. In well to do areas, you know that there's there's something about this, uh, you know, and especially in the eighties, it was there was a it was the the first you know, it was latchkey kids and the first uh, real generation of kids to grow up with. Uh, uh, divorced parents and being disconnected from their parents. And so there was like, like this. That was me right here. Yes. But, you know, kind of like a suburban isolation. Right. Right. Yeah. So you'd have all the amenities, but a lot of times you'd lack maybe some other forms of attention or love or, or, you know, so it's this idea that money is not, is going to solve certain problems, but we will have, you will have other things rise up if you don't pay attention to it, you know? That's totally true. And, you know, I think in, yeah, that's, I totally agree with that. And, and I think that a lot of people live, live that life too, um, growing up. Uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Another movie explores that too. If we're, if we're kind of going down the film path is, um, American Beauty written yeah. by Alan Ball that kind of explores that as well with that kind of, you know, what, when you have everything, then what happens? Uh, I think I think movies that do that are are always interesting, and I think when you explore that question with different types of characters, wh- what comes out of it can is always exciting. American Beauty, I thought, was a great movie. I saw that one real young. Yeah. I don't know when. You, how old are you, Doc? I'm thirty eight. Thirty eight. Okay, so we're pretty close. So yeah, I watched that one super young, and I, it was really intense for me. I thought it really kind of opened my eyes up to. Like movies that weren't, um, I guess, more, open my eyes up to dramas, really, is what well, I should if say. You, if, you, if you think about it, um, if you go along with the, that, that idea of who's, who's writing the stuff and who it's for, that's almost the same age. So you're talking about late 90s in the early 2000s. So whether it's American Beauty, Fight Club, mm, um, yep. even the, you know, uh, Falling Down, The Matrix, you, yeah. have, you have a, a protagonist, you have basically a middle aged white male protagonist who has all the has a job has the has all the stuff and looks at kind of the meaninglessness of what having the house and the furniture and the car and the job what is that what are we actually doing this for it's kind of you know and this is pre uh 9-11 so it was all about you know the booming economy of the 90s and we're kind yeah. of you know uh the Vietnam War was so long ago, and there was there was these kind of that line from you know uh, Fight Club. You know, we have no great war. You know, our yeah. great depression is our lives. Right? There's this whole right, and so that yeah. that was some, some, something going on in the culture, and then nine eleven happens, and that completely that you know that that artistic feel of you know uh, suburban tranquility and the the things that come with that goes away and it becomes a totally different thing but i think that's very reflective of that that era of what was going on it is yeah you're right it was kind of the era and that was also the you know the era of the of the indie filmmaker you know 
that I think that that the late '90s um, and the mid '90s that was when there were so many spec sales happening, and they're so they're just making movies left and right because with the VHS rentals, they're just getting so much money coming in. Oh, yeah, and no, no doubt. Yeah, so I think that was such a great time for film, and it was a great time to for people to explore those ideas that were more subtle, like what yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Um, I would love to see more films like that get, you know, get a wide release and get some more attention. We will um, see. But I want to just uh, we I want to start talking more about other films in a second. But I just want to talk a little bit oh, more yeah, about yeah, about uh, Lords of Chaos and and make kind of one point. One thing I kind of realized while we we're talking is. We're talking about suburban isolation and and all the the kind of things that that, that come from this this middle class um, kind of void, you know, is that those kids? That's most of the metalheads, right? That's the, that's the yeah. kind of the fertile ground where who you know who is getting into heavy metal? It's that disaffected group of young young people, and there's this cross section. They show it whether that's getting into he- uh, metal music or getting into horror films. There's something yeah. about those environments. You know, it's re- you know me, I'm rare. I-, I grew up in the inner city and got into heavy metal somehow. <laughs> um, but um, Where did you grow up? New York or? I grew up in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the, but the, the kind of the biggest thing, I my, my takeaway from this, or not even takeaway, but more of a questioning is, does a film like this make heavy metal and people who listen to heavy metal look bad and that's something i'm always worried about when films like this happen i mean yeah right pretty plainly <laughs> i mean yeah plainly yeah they look like assholes 100 percent. yeah um, uh, you know that's why i kind of you know at the beginning i was like why did they make this movie like i'm like you have a bunch of idiots on screen kind of you know take the filmmaking quality out of it i just it's like are these people we need to spend two hours with <laughs> you know but let me ask you a question but as far as from where I'm coming from, it also felt the most accurate, you know, because the because truth be yeah. told, you guys like you and I are probably going to have, we're going to identify more with like the, you know, the, the, the party scene in that movie than what Motley Crue went through. You know, that was such a, you know, it was a different, I feel like the Motley Crue thing is, only a f- few were ever experienced that. If either either were there for it or you weren't. Whereas we've all yeah. been to a backyard party with a bunch of metal dudes just fucking hanging out and headbanging a you know d- deicide or something. You know? Sure, or I mean that's like the front lounge today. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so so in in a way, and I think it, because it's more connected to the underground scene. Um, even though you know I wasn't part of the underground Nor- Norwegian metal scene. Um, there is something like I feel good though that there is something there's a real film out there about this world, you know, because it probably won't happen again unless somebody gets murdered. You know, like when and, and every time yeah. it does happen, it just doesn't feel it just doesn't feel authentic. And the I'd say probably the other film that I thought captured the vibe really well, even though the film wasn't primarily based around that, was Green Room. Like that felt green room was fantastic i yeah. really enjoyed that but yeah. i'm saying but just the beginning of the movie which was more about just a punk band track like it felt Touring, yeah it had a very authentic feel to it because that stuff is 100 it's usually just portrayed very poorly in films in my in my estimation 
No, you're right. And and in television, too. I think, um, you know, uh, what was that TV show, Vinyl, that they had for a while? Yes. That thing was awful. You know, I think it's really challenging to to portray touring bands correctly if you aren't a touring musician. Metal, specifically, because I think it's such a specific type of touring. I don't know many genres where the mode, you know, where like the standard method of touring is a bunch of people crammed into a van like what other genres is that i mean it's uh, yeah i guess it's just just you know rock, I mean? rock bands punk bands hardcore bands metal bands i mean well, are but, are rappers going around in vans are djs or are they just they're not no, i don't no, know they're 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 all in buses and even if you're a rock band you know the point is you do the vans to move on yeah but if you're a death metal band the van's all there ever is so oh, wow. it's kind well, of it depends who it is I mean, can, Cannibal Corpse ain't no van. Morgan yeah, ain't I no know. van. But they ain't but no all, van. They are, and I love them to death. And if anyone does it right, they're doing it right. But they're also still having the tour, you know, eight months out of the year. So Yeah, I hear what you're saying. You hear me. <laughs> I, you know, with crew, they're doing a tour every five years, you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, well, I well, select I, dates every five years. You know? <laughs> well, listen, just to kind of you know put a put a pin on this, I I I'm actually really glad we thought differently about the film because I think it, it it made this kind of discussion more, more interesting <laughs> as opposed <laughs> yeah. to just agreeing, you know. But but I, but I think a it's unfortunately if somehow I don't know who is a non metalhead who's going to watch this movie. Uh, but if they, I mean, horror, horror fans, maybe. Yeah. You know? Um. But you know, but but I do think it will make metalheads look bad, but only yeah. because they don't know the context of that. This was a particular scene in a particular band, and you know, and I and I don't. There are stereotypes in there, but it did feel like there was a deft hand at those stereotypes, um, as opposed to you know, like watching like Rock of Ages came on to TV not that long ago, and it's. It's it's, it's so bad, but it's <laughs> not so bad that it's good. It's just like every wig looks r- wrong. Every actor that's in the movie feels like they like they're so far removed from anything that has to do with the 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 thing they're talking. And that's and they're basically doing like a glam rock thing, but it's still mm-hmm. the the lack of authenticity or or connection to to the source material is just off so I, i'm just glad as an artifact that that this exists and it is a, a a real filmmaker um and i do think the people that were involved and i i listened to rory culkin on joss's podcast and that dude really really cared about this project and still really cares about it you know and i and i think you can you can see that there i do think there was the attention to detail uh i think it was pretty Pretty intense, you know, and I, 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 I'm so even though it might make us look bad, I'm happy that it exists. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, definitely agree that kind of make Black Metal look like shit. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's good that it's there. I think kind of like the book, not that the, you know, it's not like the book really made anyone look great either in that, you know, if anything, it's just, yeah, it's kind of just a, a moment in time and you can take a look back and, Take it for what it is. I, I I like to look at, or I would like to think that you know, really, we've left the origin of of black metal completely behind, and that what we consider black metal now, and when you know we go out as a band and say, yeah, we're a black metal influenced band, you know, hopefully we're 
looking at bands like Immortal and Dissection and Dimmable Gear and Cradle of Filth, you know, because, you know, for the reality of it existing, it's really, I don't know, it's really kind of a shameful origin, frankly, you know? Yeah, yeah, but uh, <laughs> but, but but like I said, without all that mythology... Um, it wouldn't exist, you're and right, the, it, you're right. Well, that it, it wouldn't have the allure to it and kind mm-hmm. of gravitas, I think, that other genres yeah. don't really have. Um, or if they do, it's just a much different... You know, there's no. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like all the all the the heavy metal versions of this were all just not really real, right? When you had like Ozzy was getting uh, was taking a chord and Judas Priest was taking a chord, it's like, yeah, we don't really believe this. We're just this is just lyrics, man. This is just it's all fancy, yeah. you know. Um, and this is something that that really happened, and it, and it gives you know just a different layer, you know, to this this genre and that and that culture and that country and. You know that's very specific to that. You know, so and I, and the truth is, like I said, I probably should have uh, someone from Norway, uh, from that scene, on here to actually talk about it because I do not want to pretend at any point like I'm an expert on this. I am not, um, and I can't speak to the the accuracy of of the film uh, with any real uh, authority. Yeah, and I don't know. Yeah, and I don't know that ac- I don't think accuracy was the target of the film, really. Well, but some, not, but, but, but some, anyway. some people yeah. will try and undermine uh, a project because of accuracy. And that's, you know, a lot of people had an issue with Bohemian Rhapsody because of, of facts that were changed. And I think part of that is just, it's not really understanding that when you're making a, a film, you, you kind of have to do what's best for the film. Regardless it's an of adaptation. What, that's the, what, what people really have to realize when you go from book to film. Yeah, it's like... The, the book is one thing, and that's a totally different medium than visual. Or even reality. Reality is one thing, but we're trying to make a piece of drama, and the, we have to make the best piece of drama. This is not a documentary. It's, it's drama, right. you know? Um, so, uh, you, you put out a... Is it a... Should we say comic book or graphic novel? Because I, I, <laughs> I, I guess I was expecting I, a graphic novel, but it's really like one issue. Yeah, like, so... Of Death, I, yeah, Death Dreamer is what it's called. Yeah, Death Dreamer, and it's part of a series. So I'm, it's, I'm working on the second one right now. But yeah, so as far as the term goes, technically, and not that I abide by it, but if it's a comic book if it's under 22 pages. And then if it's over 22 pages, it's graphic novel. And then if it's a collection of comics, it's a trade paperback. I oh. believe I have that all right. Oh, <laughs> if, I, if I don't, somebody... Now I need to see how many pages IG. it is. It's, it should be 54. Oh, it is? 50, okay. Never mind. Yeah, it's a graphic yeah. novel, guys. I'll, I'll... Right. There you go. So I, you know, it wasn't a term I came up with. I was just trying to fit, you know, be, have the right description. So what was the, the inspiration to, to write this? Well, the inspiration to write it really was, um, I'm trying to think of the year. It's probably 2012, 2011, you know, when the band was tapering off before we... We went on the break. Um, you know, I was really wanting more creatively, and I love being a lyricist and I love being a performer. But it's pretty limiting if, if you know, if you want to go into long form narrative and long form fiction, which I already ha- always had a desire for from being loving films and loving books from uh, being a kid. So I got into just long form narrative writing and i started with i don't know i I think i thought it was a book but it wasn't i think it was just me typing away and then um really i found the 
form of screenwriting and kind of the specific way you tell a story in a screenplay to really appeal to me. Uh, I just really like the pacing of it. Uh, I like the writing style of it. Personally, I have dyslexia and I've had it my whole life, so I'm actually a pretty poor reader. Um, so I read really slow and screenplays, I'm sure you've seen how they're laid out. They're mm -hmm. much quicker to read. So for someone who struggles with reading, it just was a better form for me and I, and I really took to it. And, and then uh, I did a pilot with a friend of mine. Um, it was about a veteran with PTSD that when he comes back, he gets vi uh, premonitions of happenings that he goes to stop. Not that original of a uh, plot, but it was, it was a fun first uh, writing project. And then I started working on the script for, for this, for Death Dreamer. And uh, I worked at a mortuary right after I dropped out of high school when I was 16. And it had a big impact on me. I worked there for three years. So I was a funeral uh i did removals first and then i was a funeral director for the majority of the time and then for the last six months i was apprentice involvement and um i met a lot of really interesting people there and i and i had a lot of really unique experiences that i don't think i'll ever have anywhere else at a really young age probably too young uh and and so i took a lot of that and um a lot of the advice of write what you know and write in the context of a world you have familiarity with but is also unique and so I thought the death business, mortuaries, prep rooms, embalmings, all that sort of stuff, internments, you know, I lived that for a long time and I'm very familiar with it. So I figured I'd write a fictional world within that world. And that's where Death Dreamer came from. So you were writing it initially to be a film? Yeah, well, to be a, a television series. I wrote the I wrote the pilot and that you know, honestly, the so the artist I worked with, Christian Debari, is a fantastic artist. I really want to make sure he gets a shout out here because you know, he really brought it to life with me. Uh he adapted it from the pilot script. So it actually that was really awesome for him to do that. I found him on Twitter through a connection on Twitter. Uh and he's got great credits. He's worked on Hulk, he worked for DC, like you know, he's a total pro, and he was really awesome taking a chance on me doing a story for someone that had no um, comic or, or graphic novel credits. Um, and he adapted it right off the pilot script and did a great job with it. We had to edit it for page count for pagination, um, but for the most part, that's pretty much the pilot. There's a little more in there that's that's not there, but it started as a as episode one and i'm still trying to get it to go as a show i've actually you know actually honestly uh, i had some, a real fun meeting with an actor who was on an emmy nominated show he read the script and loved it his, his agent loved it and he passed it on to him and we got to meet and super fun to talk to him and meet him and unfortunately it kind of comes down to you know call me when you got someone with the check yeah you know what i mean and it's like yeah shit that's what this business is it's like you, get, you can write something that people like, but at the end of the day, it really comes down to finding financing. Um, so, you know, that that was that had a big impact on me. And I was like, you know, I really want to, this story to live somewhere. Like, it can't just be a file on my computer. And, you know, that's when I really sought out artists and found Christian and found Tyler and, and found uh, all the guys that, that helped me with the the uh, lettering and the coloring, all the stuff, man, and, and just made it happen. So that I just wanted it to be real and to exist. And people like you and everyone else that did the crowdfund really made it happen on the back end because, man, it was expensive. <laughs> yeah, I but mean, we, we, how, much, how much did it cost to make just this one issue? It cost me $34,000. Wow. And, yeah. um, wow, that's, 
That's that's pretty. Good. And how many did you make? I made twenty five hundred. Okay, that's yeah, a pretty good run, right? Yeah. Well, the print the print was the really print. It only cost like two grand to print it. You know, it's everything yeah. else that, that was the money. You know, but yeah, uh, it, I have um, I probably have like five or six hundred left, and um, which is great actually because I I want to take them on the road. I I uh, have such a fun time talking to people on the road about it you know i mean I, of course i love the band to death and i love talking about the albums but been doing it for 15 years you know what i mean it's fun to have other conversations at the table too so it's it's cool to have the be able to talk about the book with the fans and i'll have it on the road for our may run and when we go out in the summer as well well yeah so it, it did feel very cinematic from the way it's it's, it's laid out it's funny i've heard you uh talk about like seven on uh, the, the film mm -hmm. seven on so that I, I saw some parallels, you know, you got like, got like the oh, jaded yeah. old man, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, with the, with, with the young guy kind of, it's know, a being, love letter, 100%. you know, be, being a little more optimistic and you, you know, you have the kind of walking into the, the gruesome crime scenes. Um, I'll tell you, I was expecting it to get a little more like supernatural and, and, and crazy based on like the cover and the name. I'm like, okay, where's this going? And then right. When it seemed like something crazy was going to happen, it was it was over. So I'm, um, you know. Well, hey, mystery boxes, baby. That's why you got to <laughs> see that because I mean, okay. So that's one thing to point out. Um, you know that I, I think that's that's a symptom of that it being adapted from a TV show. I think, or you know, written for a television show. I think that if, and I've been grappling with these questions myself because I I'm, I'm looking at getting uh, the second volume going, and uh, you know, I think. Yeah, what you said is kind of like that's the thing is like how what do you, how many of those mystery boxes do you want to put in and then how much do you dole out and man I am excited to do number two because we did have to take a bunch out and kind of what you're speaking to some of the exciting stuff man there is a really fun scene that I didn't get to put in that was with Doctor Sam's arc uh, you know our medical examiner's arc uh, I had to end her a little early because our page count but. I want to send you the script so you can read the script, and I'm sure you can watch it in your mind. I think you'll right, it. Right on, man. Um, how is that, you know, because screenwriting is something, you know, it's been in the back of my head for, for a long time. I'm pretty great with coming up with, I think, original concepts for ideas, but the actual work of just starting, all right, page one, let's, let's, you let's go, do yeah. this. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, another thing, but I, I, I'm such a fan of film like yourself and mm -hmm. I know that I I watch films and examine them you know in a way that's a that's not just like a normal movie goer. I definitely look at it from the you know I'm completely fascinated by the creative process of, of how film gets made because oh yeah you know with maybe with the exception of video games there's every element of uh, of every other type of art is involved in a film right you need visual mm -hmm. art you need music uh, you need writing you need uh, photography, whatever. Yeah. You know, every every single art is involved in making a film. It's a complete vision, and what you're describing is exactly why I got restless with just being a lyricist and performer. It was like, man, I want to do more than just be in somebody's ear. Uh, you know, I want to show someone something. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, yeah, I'm right there with you on all those elements. Really come together to give you. I don't know. It's cinema. I think it's it's probably the the closest to like, like a actual life that you could probably show. I think that 
you know, whether you take music, you know, we have someone like Mozart. I think he lived his life through music and you could probably learn a lot from him through his music. You, you and your music, me and my music, you can learn a lot from us through that. But I think, you know, if we were all filmmakers, I think you would probably learn a lot more about us. You know, as an artist, I'm always hiding myself in my work uh, for people to find kind of an Easter egg. And I think with seeing everything in motion, you can really hide yourself so so many more nuanced aspects in film than you can in, in just music unfortunately yeah yeah man it's uh and i i i vibe with that as as well you know in in music i think especially if you're not you know kind of a you know imagine if you're a solo artist you know singer songwriter that's probably pretty much all you you know but when you're just a, one member of a band you know, there's, a, you know, X amount of your personality is in kind of expressiveness is, is going to be in there. Um, and I think and I think like like yourself, just being interested in stories, being interested. Let me ask you this. Are you interested in going beyond just writing, like actually maybe directing or acting or being involved in other aspects of filmmaking? Yeah, 100 percent. Not acting. I'm trying to move away from being a performer. You know, I really have. I I Enjoy, enjoy, you know, being behind the camera, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, you know, and directing. I actually we're, we got three music videos for for the new album, and I was fortunate to be able to direct one of them, and I was very really enjoyed it. You know, we were so fortunate to have a, actually actually have a music video budget, which was fantastic. Thank you, Nuclear Blast. And um, you know, I got to hire some really awesome people. You know, Scott Hansen, I'm sure. Um, or do you know Scott Hansen? I, thought maybe I don't know. You guys I'm, think, I'm thinking thing. about it right now, and I, I, I feel bad if I do know him and didn't realize I did. <laughs> well, we yeah, we were able to hire Scott Hansen's production company, Digital Thunderdome, and um, one of his DPs there, Blake Studwell, was just an amazing DP. And we got a great actor. You know, he's like he was on uh, Fear the Walking Dead, and he like you know great credits, killer actor. I'll text you some stills. Actually, I think you'll really like them, but. Uh, yeah, it was so fun to direct, and it's really what I want to move towards. I love being in a, in a position of collaborating from the driver's seat. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah, like I love to be able to say, hey, I have an idea, and it is my idea, but I want everybody, if you're also excited about this idea, to come with me and, and help me do it. And not in a self-aggrandizing sort of way, but as in a, you know, it's like, let's get there together sort of way. And so directing for me felt very familiar as, you know, kind of the front man of the band. Uh, whereas, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, maybe I have, I know where I want to go, but I, I need everybody here to get there too, you know? So it was f- very familiar for me and it, it felt very comfortable and really enjoyable. Right on. Um, does, so I know Card Effect, you guys did an EP that came out in 2018. Mm-hmm. You have a new record coming out in 19, or is that? Yeah, I yeah. think I heard it's, that right. It, yeah, actually, I guess this is, I'm breaking it on the show. <laughs> yeah, oh. I mean, we haven't really said anything about it just because we've been finishing it. Really, it's it's been quite a bit of work. Um, yeah, we have a record coming out in the summer. It'll it'll come out on our on our summer tour. It's it's done. Uh, we did it with Jason Sukoff and Nick Kinney. And shout out to Jason uh, and. Yeah, Jason's man. Jason outdid himself on this record for for real. Like we, you know, we've known Jason for a long time, and he's the third record we've done with him. But 
I don't know, dude. He stepped it up on this one. It sounds like a huge record. Yeah, you know, really. I was so stoked to hear it. And we were able to go to Ted Jensen for the master. And, you know, he is the master. <laughs> the master master. He mastered so, a couple of Godforbid records. So. Yeah, man. That guy, I don't know. He just makes whatever, however great your mix is, it just sounds better when it comes back from them. So it was, it was really nice. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of this is thanks to NB. They re, they re-signed us after Slow Death and, and, gave us more money which was awesome and we and they said take all the time you need we're do, i mean we got three years in between the two records we did the the kind of the digital ep but yeah we really took our time and i was really really happy with how it came out and the, everyone that worked on it was i think really threw themselves into it so uh, i can't wait for everyone to hear it right on well you're you're a very very productive man and uh i uh ed ed <laughs> admire no nah, man you seem like you're, you got your finger in a, in a lot of different uh uh things and i think that's that's great it's inspiring for me because i'm a, i have many interests and uh always wanting to be more more productive so i think it's it's really inspiring to see people branch out and realize that uh you don't have to be tied down uh to one thing and that we can be diverse creators and that diverse artists and it only takes a little bit of self-confidence and to say hey i could do something different and make it cool and just you know, listen who knows where any of this is gonna go um but you, you know you won't know unless you try you know absolutely absolutely you know and that's i think that's you know if i'm looking at uh kind of the music industry and where i want my career to go and kind of the value of having agency over your career you know it's really when you just go and do the thing yourself that it happens you know what i mean it's it's like you know you didn't have to take a chance on another band but you did yeah and look what happened right and you know i'm I'm not trying to read your mind or anything but i'm sure there was a point there where you were like do i really want to go back on tour like is this what i want to do with my life but good thing you did because then this thing comes out of it and i think that could be you know you could, anyone could find that and even in carnifex you know when we were on the hiatus i, I thought there was a point there i thought that was that um you know we had a chance and and we went for it and then we're actually having a better career now than we did the first time you know yeah so, man yeah, it seems like it just keeps so growing growing with you guys and that's I'm, I'm always amazed when i see bands especially more in the extreme side of things just keep steadily growing um and keep finding a new audience because usually it's not usually it goes the opposite like a band kind of has a breakout record and they then they peak and then it all kind of goes that's downhill after that and and you you guys it seems like whether that's you know and, and i just even just preparing for this i went and kind of listened through the catalog and you guys just keep getting better and i think that ultimately that that does help yeah <laughs> and oh you totally help but you know we when we started no one had taken a single music lesson you know what i mean like we're all self-taught so the first record we we did in you know on a saturday and a sunday for 600 bucks so we just didn't know shit you yeah. know well, that's, that's awesome, man. So, actually, before we go, I just want to ask you, are there any movies or TV shows or stuff that maybe people don't know about that you'd like to recommend that you that you particularly like that maybe we haven't heard of? Hmm, okay. Put you on the spot. It, okay, well, I'll say, I'll do past and present because, you know, maybe somebody missed something back in the day that they could go revisit. Um, okay, so I'll do a past one. Uh, I'll say if you missed Six Feet Under... It's a, it was a series on HBO. Uh, it had Michael C. Hall in it. He, he was Dexter before he was Dexter. It kind of lives in a similar world to Death Dreamer. Really yeah, different my, in tone. One of my tone. favorite shows. 
Yeah, oh, fantastic show. Again, uh, Alan Ball, amazing writer, went on to do True Blood later too. Um, and uh, So that's my past one. And then I think my present one would be BoJack Horseman. And I know that's maybe seemed like a weird recommend, but it's actually kind of a deep show. I'm really enjoying it. That's what I've that's what I've heard. I've only watched a couple episodes. Apparently, I have to, I have to go back down the, the the BoJack Horseman rabbit hole. I, skip season one. Okay. I mean, unless you really want to. No, but that's when I started guy. watching it, and I was like, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I did the same thing. I watched season one when it was new, and I didn't get it. And then I saw some new episodes from season five, and I was like, wow, this is kind of great. So I heard it's I'm very dark. It. Oh, it is. It is really dark, but it's it's also very. Is a lot of depth to it. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a cartoon, but they're really talking about some real human emotion. Right on. Well, Scotty and Lewis, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Thanks for talking about the film. Uh, you know, for any guys, you know, check out. I don't know if they can still purchase Death Dreamer, the the yeah. the graphic mm-hmm. novel, but uh, definitely check that out and and be looking for you guys on tour coming up. You're doing. Is it a? You said. In May- in May, we're doing like a basically a West Coast regional run with Oceano Enterprise Earth and Prison. And then in the summer, um, we, should, we should be able to announce it in a couple of weeks. In the summer, we're doing uh, the festival run uh, All right. in the States. All right. Well, we don't, we don't want to spoil that just yet. But anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I, I will talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye.
track was entitled Bury Me in Blasphemy from the EP of the same name. And that was released in 2018. And it also features uh, a Nine Inch Nails cover and a Slipknot cover. They do one of my favorite songs, Heretic Anthem. So check that out. Thank you to Scotty and Lewis for doing the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Like I said, I, I want to, or I have been, but I would definitely want to try and do different shows so it's everything's not just autobiographical and we can kind of bring someone on who's interesting and, and talk about different subject matter because I think it keeps things interesting. And uh, I'm going to try and do that as, as certain topics come up or something's in the news or something crazy is happening. And, and I think all these events, you know, all these uh, different movies about rock music and metal music and all this stuff I think is, is super fascinating. It's kind of cool that you know, we're kind of getting out there in that in that realm because that's how you kind of make a, a mark in, in pop culture, you know. So I've, I had a lot of fun. Scott is awesome. And hopefully, you know, we'll we'll have him on again soon. Maybe another movie comes out, we'll bring, we'll bring him back on. Anyway, guys, I'm, I'm going to get running. You know, it's kind of late over here. Been eating some chicken parm. You know, the, you know, while I was doing this, you know, the guy from Grubhub showed up. It's like, yo, dog, got your shit. Dude is wearing a Slipknot shirt. It's like, nice shirt, brah. And then uh, and I was eating in between this stuff like a – like a savage, savage animal. All right. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for, for, for listening and uh, bearing with my uh, ridiculous political rants. And uh, hopefully, you know, I don't get too much hate mail or, uh, you know, unfollows or unsubscribes. Uh, you know, love you guys. Take care. Mamba is out. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.